everyone, and welcome to the 64th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways. Today, I'm very proud uh, that we have uh, Professor Stephen Coonan joining us. Before I even get into introducing Dr. Coonan, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on YouTube and Instagram, um, please go ahead, start typing in your questions into the comment stream. We will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, so Dr. Stephen Keenan uh, served as an undersecretary for science in the US Department of Energy under President Obama. Uh, he was a professor of theoretical physics at Caltech for over 30 years. He uh, earned his PhD in theoretical physics at MIT and since then has um, more than 200 peer-reviewed papers in the fields of physics and astrophysics, scientific computation, energy technology, and climate. He's currently a professor at New York University and author of numerous op-eds in national publications, such as the Wall Street Journal. Most recently, he is author of this book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, what it doesn't, and why it matters. Professor Coonan, uh, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be chatting with you, Jennifer. So I'd like to start the, um, the conversation and set the stage with uh, the professional experience that set you on the path that would uh, ultimately culminate with writing uh, this book, Unsettled. And it, as I understand it from reading your book, uh, the American Physical Society asked you to lead an update in its public statement on climate. Uh, as part of that effort, you convened a um, workshop with leading climate experts and physis physicists to stress test uh, the state of climate science. And um, what did you learn in, in the process and, and how did it change your perspective on priorities? Well, we, we convened that workshop in early January of 2014 in Brooklyn. And uh, as you said, we had three consensus experts and three experts who were not so on board with the consensus. And after listening to them talk for a day, and by the way, the transcript is up on the web so anybody could, can read it. Uh, you know, I, I realized the science was nowhere near as certain or as settled as I had been led to believe uh, from the media, from talking with experts informally. Um, yes, everybody agreed the globe was warming and everybody agreed that human influences were growing, but exactly how the climate would respond and what the impacts of those responses would be for society and ecosystems was pretty much a subject of great uncertainty and disagreement among the experts. All right, well, um, what we tend to see in, in the media is anything but unsettled or equivocal. We are told that uh, temperatures are rising, uh, the sea level is surging, ice caps are melting, extreme weather events like droughts, heat waves, storms, and wildfires are worsening, and that human-caused uh, greenhouse gas emissions are uh, causing all of it. Sounds pretty dire. Are we all doomed? No, I don't think so. You, you know the, the phrase climate crisis or existential threat or climate disaster. Uh, those phrases are bandied about by politicians, activists, and occasionally some folks who should know better who are scientists. Bill Gates comes to mind, for example. Uh, but when you read the actual scientific assessment reports that are put out by the UN 
or the US government that summarize and assess the science as it's written in the research literature and the data. I'm often reminded of a phrase from the movie, The Princess Bride, where one character keeps saying the word inconceivable. And then the other character says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And in fact, in this case, I don't think the science says what everybody else in the political sphere thinks it says, because those folks have not read the reports. Rather, it gets filtered, their information, through a long chain that goes through the reports, the executive summaries, the media, and ultimately they get a very distorted and unnuanced picture of what the science actually says. So um, you talk about these assessment reports and uh, when it comes to climate change and, and human impact, uh, the science is largely defined by these reports, uh, some from the United Nations, some from the United States. So, so what are those reports? How are they compiled and how uh, reliable are they? Yeah, so, so there are really two sets of reports that uh, I think are most important. One is produced by the UN, by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The last one that they did was released in 2014 or 2013. And the next one will be released on Monday, actually. Um, and these are written by a couple thousand scientists. They're massive exercises. They take years to put together. And then they're released with great fanfare. Um, each of the reports has a large body of text, thousand pages or more. But then it's got a so-called summary for policymakers, which is much more condensed. And there's opportunity for great mischief because those summary for policymakers are heavily influenced by the governments, if not written by them. And so when you compare the report with the summaries, they don't agree at all. Well, not at all, but they, they, the summaries give a very distorted picture. The other set of reports are produced by the US government, the so-called National Climate Assessment. It's mandated by Congress that the administration produce one every four years. The last one was produced in 2017 and 18 in two parts, and the next one is expected in 2023. A similar large exercise, but focused more on the US. But of course, they more or less, these two classes of reports say more or less the same thing. And when you read them, and again, most people who talk about climate have never read these reports. They say some very surprising things. Hmm. Um, well, earlier this year, the United Nations Development Program published a, a wide-ranging climate survey uh, entitled The People's Climate Vote, with more than a million respondents from 50 countries. Uh, the survey found that 64% of respondents um, believe that climate change was an emergency. Um, how accurate is this perception and, and what's driving it? You know, uh, it's not accurate at all. Uh, I mean, a common phrase is that we've broken the climate and that uh, we're headed for disaster unless we take prompt and immediate action. That's just not true in the reports. For example, there are no detectable human influences on hurricanes over almost the past century. And it says it right there in the report. Similarly, sea level, while it's rising at a more rapid rate in the last few decades, if you go back 70 or 80 years, it was rising at the same rate when human influences were much smaller. And maybe most surprisingly of all, if you look at the reports and ask what do they say about the economic impact of a change in climate? What they say is that if the global temperature were to rise by six degrees, which is four times more than what's being discussed in the Paris Accord, then the economic impact on the US or on the globe would be minimal. It would delay growth by a couple of years at the end of the century. So no, it's not an emergency. Uh, it is perhaps a problem we should be tending to, but there's no need for sweeping and rapid action. 
Great. Well, I see some of our loyal uh, attendees are, are starting to put their questions in and we are going to get to them. So please continue to uh, to type them in there as as thoughts come up. I see uh, quite a few actually have read your book. So we're going to have some intelligent questions here, which is great. And those who haven't, I hope will be encouraged to to pick it up. I, the audi the audible version is also excellent. Um, so part of the problem you identify in, in the book is a confusion in the scientific community uh, about the ethical code of the scientist versus civic advocacy, blurring the distinction between intrinsically scientific and intrinsically political questions. Uh, what, what are some examples of that? How, how did you come to that? Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, I, my... I have experience in advising decision makers in government and in the corporate world on other very different scientific matters, some of them involving very important national security issues. And the ethos that I was taught by my mentors in this business, and I have Richard followed Feynman. Dick Feynman, but other very distinguished scientists who have been involved in public policy matters, um, is that you tell the truth and the scientist's responsibility is to bring the facts to the table and they're the only people who can do that. And you have to do it completely, transparently and without bias. And of course you have to convey complicated issues to non-experts. What I've discovered is that the climate science community, let's say falls somewhat short in that dimension. I first got exposed to it when I was running the American Physical Society exercise. And one of the American Physical Society members said, you know, we can't say that in public because it would give ammunition to the deniers. And I, you know, was caught up short by that. Subsequently, when I started speaking out, I wrote a Wall Street Journal piece in September of 2014 uh, that said the models are not anywhere near as good as people think they are. Um, I had somebody come up to me who was a distinguished earth scientist at one of the nation's best universities and said, Steve, you know, I agree with pretty much everything you wrote, but I don't dare say that in public. And so it's a combination of peer pressure, uh, combination of funding um, and so on. And, you know, I'm far enough along in my career I just don't give a damn anymore. Uh, I see it my responsibility to speak the truth. And the truth is, that I'm speaking is what's in the reports themselves. It's not Steve's science, but it is the consensus science. And you, you have children, you're setting an example uh, for your children about uh, actually what, what it means to be a good scientist and what it means to be to be a good um, a good citizen, I, I was really also struck by some of the exchanges that you relate in the book. Uh, one of which um, you were looking at one particular study, which had been you know misrepresented, and and uh, somebody said, yeah, the 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 changes that we were seeing weren't that significant, and that was too bad. Well, actually, you know, no, that would be actually a good thing, right? Of course. Um, yeah. So, so it, it would be too bad if, uh, you know, we we were seeing more evidence of, of these dire um, changes and, and problems right around uh, the corner. The, the other exchange was, uh, you know, you when you just merely question or, or push back on things like, um, the seas are drying up or wildfires are, are being caused by, um, by uh, global emissions. And uh, you're, somebody says, well, you, you're a Trump voter, like, yeah. which you're, you're, you weren't, um, you worked for the Obama administration. Right. Right. And what that one has to do with the other. Uh, so. You know, the science is the science and we need to separate out the scientific certainties and uncertainties, which pretty much everybody can agree on, though maybe not want to articulate in public, uh, from the decisions about what do we do about this, which are fundamentally about values, development versus uh, environment, intergenerational 
national equity, geographical equity. Um, and those are values discussions and it's the kind of discussion the politicians and the media should be having as opposed to saying the science is certain, it's settled, if you don't believe it, you're an idiot. Um, and uh, I have been most disappointed by the public reaction of many of the consensus scientists who refuse to engage on the scientific points I've written. They're happy to engage on misquotes that other people make of me. I discovered that the secondhand quotation is uh, you know, endemic problem in public discussions of climate, but nobody has really seriously questioned the scientific points I've raised. And that's very telling and is somewhat disappointing that they refuse to engage. Um, well, as with client, climate, sometimes, uh, you know, there are inputs and then there are facts and we can't always see the uh, the dynamic and the causality and um, my hope and, and, and my belief after reading your book is that um, even what, what you're doing and putting this out there and putting, you know, people on notice that, you know, there's not just going to be a free reign to misrepresent things. Uh, we'll, we'll have a, a, a begin to have a, a change in, in the culture of the scientific community, if not, if not the media. So, so we're grateful for that. Okay, I am going to start uh, looping in our audience. Uh, John Davis down in Dallas uh, asks, in, in your book, Unsettled, Sometimes the trailing averages are averages of 10 years, sometimes 15 years. Why the difference? Yeah, I, you know, some, for some time series, they're short enough that you can't do a, a serious 30-year average. In other cases, you want to highlight sometimes the shorter-term variability. Um, it's easy enough. I, I, I've tried in all the graphs to uh, show the year-to-year -year fluctuations. And uh, then one of the running averages, as you say, sometimes 10, 15, 30, um, try to do that uh, so that you can bring out certain features. It's easy enough if I've shown a 10-year average to kind of by eye uh, smooth it out over longer time periods. All right. Um, a lot of the dire climate predictions uh, that we hear are based on computer modeling and We've seen in other fields, uh, some of the failures of computer modeling, of course, the infamous uh, British Imperial College models, which uh, drove a lot of the more extreme um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, which have observably uh, catastrophic you know, implications for the economy and, and all that the, the economy um, drives, including further scientific research and discovery. Um, what are computer models and uh, what, what are their role in climate science and how reliable are they? Yeah. So the models are the principal means by which we try to say how the climate is going to change in the future under natural and growing human influences. They work by cutting the atmosphere and the ocean up into boxes, millions of boxes, and using the basic laws of physics to track the flow of air and water and sunlight and heat through the boxes, time step by time step, typically 10 minutes or so. And you might say, well, that's just physics. It's straightforward. And some people in fact have written that in public and they should know better. Because the fundamental problem is you can't make the boxes too small, otherwise there are too many of them to track in a computer. And so practically these days, given the power of the computers that we have, which is not trivial, the boxes are still about 60 miles on a side. And that's really big. It's much bigger than the scale of the clouds, which you can see behind me in my background are maybe a kilometer across uh, the scale of mountains, a uh, couple kilometers across. And so you got to make assumptions about what's going on inside those big boxes about the small scale stuff. And different people make different assumptions. And so the models get very different answers. That's one problem. Another problem is that 
Um, the climate has cycles, natural cycles. Some of them are familiar, El Nino. Uh, others are much less familiar that take 60 or 70 years to go through a cycle. These are the natural ebbs and flows of the climate system. And unless your model gets those right, you're not going to be able to describe the past century, say, and then you're going to have trouble extrapolating that into the future. So that's another problem. Yeah, and the I, models I in, in general don't get that right. Go ahead. Sorry. In, in your book that you took some of these um, statements that were considered as settled science, you looked at the actual research that it was based on. Sometimes it involved modeling. Um, but the modeling wasn't used, which I, I understand it should be able to be used. Uh, you were calling it hind casting yes. to, to look yes. back if the fundamentals yes. are there. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that, as I mentioned, the next report will come out on Monday. The models that inform that report, which is the newest generation of models, they've already been out there for a year or so, and they are coming in much more discrepant with each other and with the actual climate than the previous generation. So as they introduce more sophistication, the models are becoming less certain. And that's not a hallmark of settled science. What's the report that's coming out again on Monday? So it's the sixth assessment report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's actually the first section of that sixth assessment, which is concerned with the physical aspects of the climate. Uh, there are subsequent sections that are concerned with ecosystems, um, that are concerned with economic impact, uh, and then are concerned with, well, what does this all mean and what do we do about it? Those, those latter sections will come out probably a year or so from now. Okay. All right, Scott, who is a regular at our webinars, has a question referring to a controversy with which I'm not familiar. So I'm not going to assume that you are. We'll give it a shot. Uh, he asks if Professor Kunin has any thoughts on scientists like Michael Mann suing people like Mark Stein in yeah. an attempt to silence climate right. criticism. Yeah. I, that's I mean, who are yeah. these people? And I mean, that's entirely unprofessional behavior. Um, and it seems characteristic of, I'm old enough now, I can say this, of a younger generation of accomplished climate scientists. Um, they're very snarky, uh, very combative. Uh, not only Michael Mann, but Gavin Schmidt, who's now the principal climate scientist in the Obama administration. Um, they have brought discourse down to a level that is entirely unprofessional. And perhaps it's due to the 140 character limit in Twitter or just the way that the debate has been conducted. They call people names, of course, they have been called names as well by non-scientists. If you've read the book, I've tried to be very circumspect about uh, people's motives, people's personalities, and so on. This is not the way we do science. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, this seems more like an observation, but uh, an informed one. Um, thank you, Dr. Kunin. I also have a PhD from MIT in physical chemistry. Uh, he has read the IPCC reports and many other technical papers, uh, including those that take a more realistic view of the effects of the sun, the fact that a rising CO2 follows a temperature rise, et cetera. Also, one should uh, recall the global cooling frenzy of the, the 1970s. So, um, okay, uh, Aaron Tao, uh, who is, is with the Atlas Society, and, uh, let, me, let me just make a, a comment about the global right. cooling. If you, you. if you look at the global temperature record, the official record, um, it warmed from 1910 to 1940 at a pretty good clip. It then went down from 1940 to 1970 or 75. It cooled. And then it's been going up again for the last 35, 40 years. 
the rate of warming in the early part of the 20th century from 1910 to 1940 was about the same as the rate of warming that we've seen in the last decades. And the cooling was there even as human influences grew. So just by looking at that graph, you can see that this is already a lot more complicated than just that rising CO2 is warming the earth. Thank you. Um, Aaron Tao, he, uh, he's a supporter of the Atlas Society. He actually has joined the Atlas Society now and um, runs our book club for students. So Aaron, Hi, Aaron. to consider, we could possibly twist Professor Koonin's arm to, to join us. Um, so he asks, what are the reaction of scientists um, like Michael Mann, who created the infamous hockey stick uh, on the other side to your work? Um, are any of them willing to debate you in public? Yeah. So um, let me just say, I get many unsolicited emails from scientists and engineers who are not deeply involved in climate science that say, thanks for writing a well-documented, transparent, technical level book that um, lays out the facts. I've also had quietly comments from some working climate scientists who, again, uh, they might disagree with some of the things I wrote, but by and large, you said, you got it about right. As to the public reaction of other folks like Michael Mann, Naomi Oreskes, um, uh, they have written what I, again, I would consider unprofessional pieces in Scientific American, uh, in which, again, there's a lot of name calling and motive imputation but very little direct engagement on the facts. And in one case, I put up on, uh, on my website on Medium, uh, a detailed rebuttal of some of the things that they have said. Uh, as far as direct debate, um, stay tuned. Uh, there are some things lined up in the fall, which I hope will come to fruition. And we may have a chance to have a substantial engagement uh, with people of different points of view. That's very exciting. And we will, we will stay tuned. What, by the way, is, is the best way to, to follow you, for example, your reaction to the, the yeah. sixth assessment for a section coming up on Monday? Yeah. Or uh, so, debates? I mean, you, you, you might expect that I will be speaking out once I've had a chance to look at the uh, report. So there'll probably be some media presence a week or two uh, after the release. Um, you can find me on Medium. I have a website if you search for Medium Kunin. Uh, I have been relatively um, quiet in other media beyond the book. I have no social media presence. Uh, I do have these two pieces up. Again, I think the best way to discuss science is in a substantial considered way mm -hmm and not this back and forth volley of 140 character or whatever the limit is now um, of tweets and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's just not a way to do substantial, thoughtful work. So here in California, uh, fire season is, is around the corner and many in the media and politicians uh, say that these catastrophic wildfires are a result of climate change, human-caused climate change. Um, it's very personal to me as, as someone who rebuilt my house after uh, a wildfire started actually by, by arson and, and narrowly escaped a, another fire. Um, is climate change causing or exacerbating uh, fires in, in California and elsewhere, and, and how much of that is due to human uh, influence and, and could be mitigated or, or ameliorated by human action? So um, let me start with some fire facts, which might surprise you. If you look at the U.S. as a whole, and I'm sure there are comparable figures for just the West Coast, Fires were much more common in the early 20th century. 
five or six times more common than they are today in terms of acreage burden. And the reason for that, and then they declined the incidence uh, to about 1970. And the reason for that decline was Smokey the Bear. Uh, the Forest Service put in a policy of suppressing or not letting burn at all uh, natural fires, that got, or fires whether natural or human caused. Um, and then we've seen a gradual rise over the last 40 years from the minimum around 1970, but it's still about one sixth of what it was uh, before that. So fire is a natural part of the West Coast landscape. The terrible fires that we've seen over the last few years are a combination of several factors. One is the forest fire policies that have let the fire, let the forest grow. So mm -hmm. you've got a lot of fuel there. The second is that the climate has been drier. And so you've got a lot of dry fuel and we'll discuss the climate change in a moment. Uh, and then of course you need an ignition source. And uh, as you mentioned, arson is an important factor. I think something like 80% of US wildfires are started by people in one way or the other. So, and, and then the last thing, of course, is that people like to live in the forest and we have built cities, towns uh, surrounded by forest. And so when they burn, terrible things are gonna happen and they did. Um, what role does climate play? Well, it has been drier for the last couple of decades on the West Coast. But if you look back over centuries and we have records in tree rings and other ways, there have been mega droughts in the West uh, over the last couple thousand years, uh, which have been entirely natural. Now, to what extent are the last few decades natural versus um, human caused, uh, I think is still up in the air. Certainly the warmer temperatures around the globe that we've had have exacerbated the droughts. But, you know, if we stop driving SUVs, that's not going to stop the fire. Right? It just isn't. Um, Okay. One of the so, so so let me just talk about extreme events. I mean, we've seen the fires, we've seen floods in Europe, we've seen the heat wave in the Northwest. These are weather phenomena. And what I like to use as a demonstration of that is the record of the level of the Nile River as measured in Cairo over about a thousand years. And the Egyptians were doing that from about 650 or so uh, up until the Aswan Dam messed things up in the 1970s. And when you look at that record, you see tremendous year-to-year -year variation in the water level of the Nile, but there are smooth trends over decades. And if you look at, I have a graph in the book, if you look in 650 to 750 or so, it was going down. And you can just imagine some medieval Egyptian climate panel saying, we've got to pray some more and maybe do some sacrifices. And then it turns around again in 50 or 60 years. So there are these natural variations. And one of the challenges in climate science is to separate those natural variations from the response to human influences. Got it. Um, Aaron Tao just told me we have you on uh, our list for November. So we'll be huh? reaching right. back out to you. And it's a really wonderful, group of young people who, who read the book and- Good. Yeah. So um, in your book, you talk about an idea proposed in a Wall Street Journal op-ed on the eve of the March for Science. I think that was back in 2017. Uh, and that was convening a red team, blue team uh, process for climate science. What is that process and, and why do you believe it's needed? Yeah. You know, deciding what we do about a changing climate uh, is a major societal decision that, as I said, needs to be informed by science. Major technical projects, like the launch of a spacecraft, for example, are always subject to red team reviews. We do that routinely in the intelligence community as well, you know, to decide whether the Iraqis building a atom bomb or not, uh, you have a red team. And the red team is supposed to pick holes in the argument. They do that both to make sure that you've got things right, but also to find things that could go wrong that you need to fix. Um, 
Climate science doesn't have that. Yes, people will argue that the scientific literature is peer reviewed, and that's true. That's some quality check, but the assessment reports are very different. They involve judgments, they involve language, spin in some cases, and there is no independent hard scrub of them. When I started to realize how misrepresentative some of the assessment reports were, I said, we should be doing a red team. I tried to get that going for various reasons. We couldn't do it. So the book is in part what I think a red team would have written uh, about some of the reports. And obviously I found instances where the reports misrepresent uh, either by not telling the whole story or misportraying the data. Um, and those are the kind of things that need to be scrubbed out and brought to the public's attention. That, you know, sea level was rising almost as rapidly 80 years ago as it is today. Most people don't know that. Oh, I think but, it's an excellent the, idea. And the, and... the reports bury that. So I've been trying to get this going. Um, the uh, consensus community doesn't want it because they don't want these things, I think, they don't want them highlighted. Well, it would be interesting to do another poll of, of the, the consensus community. And if they believe that deniers, and, and that term is used uh, to cover people who are, are merely skeptical of, of some of the hyperbole and, and some of the mischaracterizations that you're referring to, if they, I think a real driver of deniers or, or skeptics is precisely because they, they, you know, those who look a little bit more carefully see that um, there is a, a lot of misrepresentation. And so kind of clearing the air on that, I think would restore, um, yeah. restore confidence to not just climate science, but, but other science. Um, it, you, you know, in many respects, I don't consider myself a skeptic because almost everything I've written in the book is right out of the reports or the subsequent quality literature. So it's not my science in some ways, it's the science that the community has written, but uh, um, has not come through because nobody reads the reports. Yeah, I think I, I'm referring to a skepticism of the consensus, skepticism oh, yeah, yeah. of some of these more um, spectacular claims, not, yes. you know, the, the fundamentals. Right, that, the you know. skepticism of the narrative, perhaps. Uh, is Fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Uh, okay, Dean Scoville asks, uh, says oh. he recalls reading decades ago that a singular sizable volcanic event could offset all manner of man-made pollution curtailments, given such realities, the fact that such events have seen uh, the Earth's surface subsuming itself throughout millennia, doesn't that underscore the problems associated with the political hyperbole? Yeah. Uh, first of all, Dean, if you're the Dean I knew from another part of my life, uh, hi. Um, so volcanic events do influence the climate. When a um, large eruption goes off and Pinatubo was perhaps one of the more memorable ones, they put a lot of uh, dust, aerosols, it's, it's less than dust, it's small particles, into the stratosphere. And they cool the planet demonstrably. You can see it in the temperature record. Uh, those particles fall out over uh, a couple of years, and so their influence wanes, but they do influence the global climate. Um, the problem is it doesn't last forever. It lasts for a couple of years. And um, so it would not uh, really do to offset the human caused uh, warming, however great that is. If we were to do it artificially, which is one of the geoengineering schemes, we'd have to keep refreshing the aerosol cloud. And of course, there are lots of issues with that environmental impacts. It doesn't quite cancel the greenhouse warming and so on. So yes, it happens, but uh, it's a transient uh, phenomenon. Well, speaking of the geoengineering um, as the daunting challenge of uh, mitigating greenhouse gas emissions became clear to you, um, 
you became interested in other perhaps more feasible strategies uh, for responding to climate change, um, such as such as geoengineering. One would think that those who are most convinced that, uh, that we are in a crisis, that um, we are in uh, you know, a tipping point, past a tipping point, that climate is broken, that they would actually be the most interested in uh, such strategies, but um, that's not the case. Not why, the case. Why is that? Uh, yeah, I, you know, um, I, I think, well, let's just enumerate the strategies uh, just briefly. Yeah, yeah so uh, if you would, so, just kind of what, what, what we're talking. So the, there are two classes of geoengineering. Uh, one is what's called solar radiation management, which is to make the earth a little bit more reflective so it doesn't absorb as much sunlight and so stays cooler. As I mentioned, volcano eruptions into the stratosphere are a natural way in which that happens. It would be feasible and we could do it. It wouldn't cost very much to do that artificially. There are downsides associated with it, which I don't wanna go into now, but it is in some ways hacking the planet to reverse the greenhouse gas uh, warming. Uh, the other mode of geoengineering is to suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, and you can do that by planting a lot of trees. You can also do it artificially by using chemi building chemical plants that would uh, run the air through a filter, if you like, remove the CO2, and then you dump it in the ground. Uh, both of those methods, both the carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation, have a lot of downsides, not the least of which would be the cost and what are you going to do with those billions of tons of CO2? Um, the other strategy is to adapt. And we have done that as a species very well over tens of thousands of years of changing climate. Uh, people now live in everything from the Arctic down to the equator, and we do just fine. Uh, the climate will be changing slowly enough, we expect, so that we'll be able to adapt just fine. All right. And, well, you know, and why, aren't people, it, why aren't people interested in that if they're so worried? Yeah, why, why uh, you yeah. said it just is you're, you're greeted with sort of uh, tight-lipped yeah. silence. Well, and you know, again, these are the people that should be the, the most eager because they yeah believe that, you know, uh, we are in crisis right. to, to look to what, you know, plan B. I, I, I think, you know, an, another question along those lines is nuclear power fission is uh, an obvious solution to emissions free energy. And yet that has also historically been uh, uh, issued by uh, the people who are concerned. I think part of it is a uh, desire to simply get rid of fossil fuels for no matter what reason. Uh, another is a reaction to big business. Uh, people don't like that at all because our energy is supplied largely by big business. Um, another is a desire to localize energy and have the solar cells on your roof and not have to rely on some large entity hundreds of miles away. Um, but I think those are on average, pretty poor ways of satisfying energy needs. Um, and to be fair, adaptation has become more prominent in discussions now as people have started to realize just how hard it's going to be to zero out emissions by the middle of the century or 2070. Uh, as I said in the book, I think it's a practical impossibility. So we're going to adapt. Yeah, I, I mean, you said that the the Paris Climate Accords, that the the goals that they were setting, would uh, require that we completely forswear fossil fuel fuels within the next thirty to to fifty years, and that you know, is not going to happen. You know, I, I mean, I, we could probably, although we could talk about just how difficult it's going to be for the U.S. to get to zero. The administration has proposed some plans for that. But what matters are global emissions. Mm -hmm. And there are 40% of the globe right now 
3 billion people who don't have adequate energy. And the most convenient and reliable way for them to get that energy is with fossil fuels. And so you're going to tell them you can't have that energy or you're going to have to pay more because you're going to get it from wind and solar. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and I would say it's immoral not to let those folks have the energy they need to improve their lives. Right. Um, so recently, uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter have become a lot more aggressive towards uh, banning, suppressing, fact-checking uh, posts on a range of issues, including climate science. How, how, what's your experience been with this practice? Yeah, so, so I was fact-checked um, uh, by some organization, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 climate scientists. What they did was to take what some review of my book said mm -hmm. and uh, then uh, read but it. Uh, and in fact, if you look on the Medium page, you will find my point-by-point -point rebuttal to their criticism, most of which consisted of, yeah, you know, I said that in the book, what you said, uh, you just never read the book. And in fact, one of the fact checkers admitted to me, uh, he never read the book. So uh, that's entirely unprofessional. And I think was meant to simply shut the book down in many people's eyes uh, soon after it was published. Um, I had a chance to publish a little bit of the rebuttal in a Wall Street Journal uh, follow-up. And so I think it's reached more than a few um, people. Uh, again, the, so I, as I mentioned, I stay off social media. I don't pay attention to it unless somebody draws something in it to my attention. Um, you know, I'm interested in talking with serious people and um, I don't think that's a place for serious discussions. Certainly is a distraction, <laughs> as I can attest. Yeah. So uh, folks, we have about 12 more minutes. So we still have time for a couple of short questions. If you wanna go ahead and type them in to, uh, to our search, to our, um, your comment streams on our various platforms. Uh, here's an interesting one. Uh, Vicky asks, can you talk about drones used in Dubai to create rain and reduce temperature? I hadn't heard yeah. of this. Yeah, I've not, I've not heard that either. You know, weather modification is a uh, long-time dream of humanity. Uh, obviously, agriculture depends so much on weather. Uh, and you can read in the Bible, you know, uh, a phrase that says, if you follow God's commandments, he'll bring you rain, which is very important in the Middle East. Um, in the early 19th century, uh, the first U.S. meteorologist, James Pollard Espy, proposed inducing rain by setting forest fires. The smoke from the fires uh, will help in cloud formation and rain, and it's not uncommon to see rain accompanying forest fires. Uh, he actually proposed that to Congress there was no great enthusiasm for it, and so it didn't happen. Um, but the Russians took it up seriously. The Chinese uh, during the Beijing Olympics uh, were successful in keeping Beijing uh, cloud-free or rain-free. Uh, so you can modify weather. Um, uh, the particular thing in Dubai, I don't know about, but it's not impossible that you could, you could do that. Um, but again, weather is not climate, and uh, we should be mindful of that. If we're running out of questions, an interesting thing to talk about might be the Biden administration's policies. Yeah. Uh, but if there are more questions, I'm happy to do that. Uh, well, so. uh, we actually did just get a question uh, about okay. that. So how, how do you think uh, the Biden administration, and also if you have thoughts on, uh, given just the unrealistic and, and non-binding nature of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, whether Trump's, uh, the Trump yeah. administration's withdrawal from, from those accords. But yeah, uh, I mean, Certainly, there's so, so, so I, let me just say what about the Paris Accord and, and you know, Glasgow is upcoming. So there'll be the uh, five year, it turned it to six years because of COVID, but um, the countries will meet in Glasgow in uh, early November and review the commitments that countries have made to reduce their emissions. And uh, hopefully countries will make new commitments the activists would like us to see. 
Um, you know, I'm kind of neutral on the Paris Accord. It will have no practical import on the climate, even if the um, uh, goals are met and most countries are not meeting their goals. The U.S. is. Um, it's symbolic, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a lot more talking than it is real impact. Um, the Biden administration is proposing policies that would amount to a large-scale, um, rapid, relatively rapid decarbonization of the U.S. energy system, in part to meet those goals, and more generally to get to net zero by 2050 for the whole economy. And it involves things like trying to make the electrical power system emissions-free by 2035, forbidding the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles, so cars that run or trucks that run on diesel and gasoline by 2035, uh, curtailing the production of oil and gas in the US um, rather strongly. Um, and, you know, they seem to forget that oil and gas are about 8% of the GDP and employ about 10 million people in the US. We've got 280 million fossil fuel driven vehicles on the um, um, road right now. Um, energy involves just about every aspect of, of life. And if you start mucking with the energy system, you're going to require people and businesses to change a lot. Energy systems can change, but they change slowly, much more like orthodontia than tooth extraction, which is what's being proposed. And so I think that as the practical effects of these policies or proposed policies start to uh, impact ordinary people's lives, there's going to be a lot of pushback. You mean I can't buy that F-150 anymore? I got to buy an electric vehicle? Um, you mean my electricity has now gotten less reliable and you're starting to see that in California, of course, and we saw it in Texas. Uh, so I think people are going to push back strongly. We've seen that kind of pushback already in France from the Yellow Vest protests. The UK just had a um, call back a proposal to require expensive heat pumps in houses rather than gas boilers to heat the houses. Um, and eventually people are going to ask, tell me again why we're doing all of this. And I think that can be the start of a very interesting discussion that we should have had before we decided to go down this road. Having been a part of the Obama administration, um, would you compare, how would you compare the Obama administration's goals, sense of you know, realism, uh, the, the science that it was guided by with, with the Biden, is it, is it just an extension or have uh, things? I, I think the Biden administration um, has, uh, you know, when I was in the Obama administration and then subsequently in the energy department, we had scientists, Steve Chu first, and then Ernie Moniz, who were secretaries and they understood the technical realities, even if they didn't speak about them uh, very loudly. Uh, secretary Granholm, the current Secretary of Energy, uh, does not have that kind of technical background. And I think uh, is entirely captive to um, scientists and engineers who are not telling her the truth. Um, I, you know, one of the things I like to say about the book is, I would hope that decision makers in the cabinet uh, and uh, the president, vice president, would read the book and say, gosh, I didn't know that, and ask their advisors, is that guy couldn't write? Does it really say that? And when they come back and say, yeah, that's what the reports say, they might start to ask, what else am I not being told uh, about the climate? And again, really getting people to just start to think critically and ask questions rather than just accepting what the media and activists are telling them. So uh, we're getting to the end here. My, one of my biggest takeaways uh, from, from your, your book was, was actually a philosophical one. Um, you close by saying we need to move 
the science back to science. And um, again, you said we need to do that by restoring integrity to the way uh, science informs society's discussion about climate and energy. Uh, Ayn Rand is obviously we at the Atlas Society are focused on um, connecting young people with uh, with her philosophy, which is called ob objectivism. It, it's based in the reality of the natural world uh, and epistemology of, of reason. So um, she, she observes science was born as a result and consequence of philosophy. It cannot survive without a philosophical, particularly epistemological base. If philosophy perishes, then science will be the next to, to go. So one does not need to be an objectivist to note that objectivity uh, has been downgraded in favor of agenda-driven narratives. Um, any thoughts on uh, perhaps, and, and I know you explicitly say in the book, you're not a philosopher, you're not an ethicist, but, um, but you also said you've been around for a while and, and you've seen uh, America through, through different eras. Um, any sense of, of the deeper cultural forces that may be driving this and, um, and how, how they may be reversed? Uh, so, you know, in, in previous decades, I have read Ayn Rand's writing, so I'm familiar with um, the stance and the philosophy. And I think, to some extent, all scientists are objectivists, or maybe with a Russian accent, accent objectivists. objectivists. Yes, right. They are uh, objectivists. Uh, yeah. So um, we believe in an objective reality that's measurable, that's understandable by rational thought. I think most scientists would agree to those statements. And it is very disturbing to me to see that kind of stance abandoned in the media uh, in the political sphere, uh, and frankly, in the general public. And, you know, you can bemoan, as I do, the failure of our educational system uh, for some of that. I think social media play a role as well. And unfortunately, you see popular opinion being manipulated uh, in non-factual uh, ways is very disturbing to me. I think it is perhaps the existential threat to the country uh, not necessarily climate, but just the fact that um, people don't think anymore. They, they deny an objective reality. Uh, my tactic, at least as far as the science goes, has been to try to reach my fellow scientists who are not climate scientists and to show hmm. them the kind of misrepresentation that goes on in the reports, in statements by professional societies and by the media with the hope that maybe they will rise up and say, hey, this is tarnishing all of science and you got to stop it. But that's just a hope. We'll see whether it actually happens or not. I, I think that I think that's a good strategy um, because I do think that it has collateral damage uh, for, for other fields. And I, I certainly feel that about um, economics, about uh, the pandemic, you know, when all of a sudden we're saying, well, we're, we're, this isn't true, but we don't want people to panic or we want people to do this. And therefore we're going to tell them something that we know not to be true. I mean, at some point people begin to, uh, to doubt the whole enterprise. And I don't, right. I don't think that's, that's, that's really bad. That's really bad. You, you quoted uh, the Albert Einstein, you know, um, saying that uh, science, you know, implies a duty to, uh, to reveal and convey not just uh, what we know, but, but that which we don't know right. and not to conceal. Yeah. So my, my stance, as I say in the book, is not to persuade, but to inform. And these are difficult decisions about climate, also about the pandemic, where you've got to balance economics against public health and so on. I can't make those decisions, and I don't think my fellow scientists should be making those decisions, but that's why we pay the big bucks to politicians. Uh, to do that. Well, um, 
And that's why we can unreservedly recommend uh, that you guys, and many of you already have picked up a copy of Unsettled. It's wonderful. Again, as I mentioned, it is um, also great on Audible. And we're going to be looking forward to your commentary on this report coming up. Uh, and I'm very excited that, uh, that we have your book featured in upcoming book clubs. So, Professor Coonan, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be talking with you. And for those of you who enjoyed this webinar, I uh, want to also let you know next week, I'm going to be continuing a bit with this theme. Uh, we're gonna drill down uh, perhaps a little more on uh, wildfires. I I'll be interviewing um, Brian Yablonski. He's president of PERC, which is the Property and Environment Research Center. Um, if you are enjoying these webinars and if you are pleased with the rest of the work the Atlas Society is doing with our graphic novels, our animated videos, our book clubs for students, please consider uh, chipping in and making a tax deductible donation to the Atlas Society. We will put that in the chat bar. And uh, again, Professor Coonan, thank you. And thanks everybody for joining us. Okay. So long.